Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Carla McGuire-Davis. She's an associate professor of pediatrics, uh, also in the section of uh, immunology, allergy, and retrovirology. Uh, She's the director of the Texas Children's Hospital Food Allergy Program. Uh, She's a Janie and Sandra Queen endowed chair in immunology and HIV slash AIDS at Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, There's a lot that she works on, but today we're going to focus on food allergies and then some gastrointestinal problems, you know, that affect uh, children. So, Carla, thanks for coming. My pleasure to be here. Yeah. If you would tell me um, what got you interested in food allergies and working with children and gastrointestinal issues in the first place. Wow, that's a great question. I um, was a training uh, doctor. I was a pediatrician and I was training to be an allergist and immunologist. And I kept seeing children who were pretty highly impacted by their um, allergic skin disease and their food allergies. Um, I noticed that there was a little bit of research happening, but not too much with regard to the uh, immunology of these children, as well as the best way to figure out what foods they were and weren't allergic to. So I became um, really interested in this. There were two cases in particular that that really pushed me towards this field. One was a little boy, um, yeah, who had severe uh, atopic dermatitis, always had uh, skin infections, and, uh, and was anaphylaxing or having severe allergic reactions to uh, things like milk, you know, things, wheat, things that uh, everybody eats. And because he, he could not stay in a daycare, his mother, who was in school for nursing, quit her job and had to stay home. And I could see she was quite impacted and affected by that. And, oh, yeah. and I, that was the first time I really realized how big of an impact uh, severe food allergy could make in someone's life. The second case. Well, everyone's uh, yeah. everyone's worried about their children, and I'm sure if your child's like that, you know, you you're constantly worried that they can anaphylax and and die. You know, so I'm sure that it's a big drain on the yeah. whole family's energy. Absolutely, absolutely. And then the second case was actually an adult. He came into the clinic and and he was really emaciated. And as a rail, I thought he had cancer or tuberculosis. Um, or HIV disease. And then I asked him what he had, and he said food allergies. And, uh, and it, uh, to make a long story short, he actually didn't have the food allergy he thought he had. And um, in my quest to figure out um, whether he truly had food allergy or not, because he had positive tests, um, and, the, and his prior doctor told him to stay away from all foods that had any trace of, of uh, this food in it, um, which was pretty much everything he ate. So he said he didn't know what to eat and he lost like 40 pounds. And uh, and so I realized that the only way I was going to be able to 
let him know or to figure out whether he truly had food allergy was to give him a food challenge. And my particular office at the time um, didn't allow food challenges because it's a relatively risky procedure that has to be done in an office. And I called around to every single office, every person I knew in the greater Houston area, and I could not find anybody who would do this procedure. And, and that was- what is, a, what is a food challenge, by the way, before we move on? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, so um, in order to figure out if a person has food allergies, um, we have to do what's called a food challenge because the blood tests or skin tests can't really tell us with 100% certainty whether a person does or doesn't have food allergy. So it's a procedure, food challenge is a procedure where a person in an office or in a hospital setting is given very small amounts of the food. And, um, and then, um, so let's say a hundredth of a serving size, monitored for 15 minutes and then given a little bit more and, and then 15 minutes and, and has about seven or eight of these um, doses to see if the person actually reacts to a serving size of the food. And, oh, and even this can, can, for certain people, can kill them? Well, because they're in an office and, or a hospital, it could, I mean, it, I guess technically, if you react, you could die. But because you're getting medical care immediately, um, it's, it's, you know, exceedingly rare that this happens. So, and, and allergists yes. is what's called the gold standard. And we only do this test in children or adults that we at least think they have a 50% chance of passing the challenge. And those people are less likely to have a severe disease that would kill them. And so, uh, because I couldn't find anybody, I, I did it myself and, but I, I recognize there was this need, right, in, in my area um, to be able to tell people whether they did or did not have a food allergy. And it causes so much disruption to people's lives. I felt strongly that uh, that service needed to be there. I've heard with uh, peanut allergies, there's now a protocol to give people like minute, like a thousandth of a peanut uh, continuously over you know a period of weeks and slowly increase it and they can even uh, get resistance or a combination or whatever you want to call it to severe severe allergies like that. Yeah, that's a, that is a really exciting development in the field of food allergy. Um, it is the first FDA approved treatment for any kind of food allergy. And, uh, and it's, it's a peanut oral immunotherapy. And each peanut has about 250 milligrams of peanut protein in it. And this particular therapy starts with one milligram. So kind of a 250th of a peanut. And, uh, and the, the, this oral immunotherapy process um, is where this peanut flour that's in a small capsule is um, essentially placed, the capsule's un unscrewed and opened, and the flour that's inside is placed on food that the person takes every single day. And um, they do that for two weeks. And, and then every two weeks, the dose is increased. But when the dose is increased, they come in to the office um, to have a food challenge to the next higher dose. And what, uh, tends, what the body does is it becomes more um, desensitized or more tolerant 
to the peanut when it's introduced in that manner in a very slow fashion, starting very, very low and then increasing to um, 300 milligrams of peanut, which gives protection against accidental exposure to trace amounts of peanut. And so what it does is give, um, uh, it, it kind of removes that fear and anxiety that peanut allergic people have when they go to a restaurant or to a friend's house where they never try to eat peanut containing food, but sometimes cross-contamination occurs, which is when a very trace amount of peanut will get into food just because of the sharing of utensils or pots. Um, and so this therapy protects people from accidental um, exposure reactions. Huh. Okay. Well, so all the people who are treated have to continue to avoid uh, peanut. They can't just go out and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Oh, even if they've been on this protocol and they're getting slightly more and more peanut over time, they still can't have peanuts normally? Correct. Well, and, and no, our, one of our studies that we're, um, is being reviewed right now for publication, um, we actually did what's called a high-dose oral immunotherapy protocol, as we call it high-dose, because we gave the patients um, around 4,000 milligrams of peanut. And, uh, and that's anywhere from, you know, peanuts are kind of different sizes. I said 250 milligrams, um, but peanuts are a little bit different sizes. So it was around 15 to 20 peanuts um, at the end. And, uh, and those patients actually could eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich um, after they finished. But it's kind of an interesting thing with peanut allergic uh, patients. They don't all like the taste or the smell of peanut even after having the oral immunotherapy treatment. So it's, it's, it's difficult to daily take that uh, much peanut for many uh, of the patients who participated in our study. So in giving minute amounts of peanuts, I mean, why is it even given to these people? Is it to prevent them from having a deadly reaction, but they still can't go and eat peanuts, but at least they won't you know, die if they accidentally have you know, uh, let's say like a peanut curry, like what, what's the point of it if it doesn't fully cure them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, there is, you're right, there's no cure. What uh, contributes to the anxiety and fear and low quality of life of people with peanut allergy is the fact that uh, most of them have an experience at one point or another where they think they're eating a safe food. And like you said, peanut curry, if they just have a curry sauce, they may ask, you know, does this have curry in it? And the person who's um, giving it to them, uh, serving it to them, doesn't even know. So they say no. And then they have, yeah, deathly reaction. It, it puts them in the hospital. They have to have EpiPen. Um, some of them end up in the intensive care unit. So in order to prevent those kind of episodes and to have peace of mind that one doesn't have to constantly worry and be vigilant all the time is, is actually um, something that can really increase the quality of life of peanut allergic patients. Okay, that makes sense. So, um, yeah, what are the most predominant allergies that you see in children and adults? Are they different and, you know, are they changing? Like, what are they today? Mm -hmm. Yeah, over the last um, 15 years, we've actually seen um, an increase in the prevalence of food allergies. And there are eight foods 
that cause about 90% of food allergies in adults and children. Those are milk, egg, wheat, soy, peanut, tree nut, fish, that's like flatfish, like salmon, and shellfish, like shrimp. And, um, and so and of these eight food groups, uh, children have um, more or an increased incidence of the milk, egg, soy, and wheat allergies. And adults are, have more prevalence of the peanut, tree nut, shellfish, and fish allergies. So, and interestingly, um, the foods that, or the food allergies that are outgrown, the foods that are typically tolerated as children um, get older are milk, egg, wheat, and soy. Typically, um, anywhere from 85 to 90% of children will outgrow those allergies by the time they get to be 18 to 21 years of age. Um, the peanut, tree nuts, shellfish, and fish allergies are typically not outgrown. They typically, even if they develop in childhood, are lifelong. I'll give you an example. There, there was a, a large study done with peanut allergy, and uh, it found out one in five children who have peanut allergy outgrow their peanut allergy. And for tree nuts, only one in 10 children will outgrow that tree nut allergy. Um, we are wanting to do a, a shellfish natural history study, but um, you know it takes a very long time. So, uh, so we're going to try to treat it um, and, uh, and have a study to use oral immunotherapy to treat uh, shellfish allergy. It, uh, it is a significant concern and, and problem for adults. And actually, shellfish allergy is the number one allergy uh, in adults. Does it, has anyone figured out why people get allergies and they're there? I mean, like, how do you characterize or categorize the different types of reactions you can have to the same allergen? Okay, that's a good question. There are two questions. So one, the first question is, you know, why have allergies been increasing? And we think it has something to do, it's, it's faster than we would expect with any kind of uh, mutations or genetic drift, things that... Um, Charles Darwin would talk about, right? Um, and um, with selection methods, we think it has more to do with the environment. And um, the fact that we live in a more clean society, by clean, I mean, we don't play in dirt like we used to. We don't really live on farms and in, the, in uh, industrialized countries, in uh, first world countries, um, as you would call them. Um, we live inside buildings. We don't have exposures to um, things that our immune system, especially the allergy part of our immune system, is really designed to, uh, to fight against. So um, the allergy immune system uh, really fights against parasitic diseases. Um, it it uh, is influenced by good bacteria uh, to kind of be calm in our body. And so uh, because we live in buildings, don't have exposures to things like parasites um, or other bacteria that might occupy the part of our immune system that reacts to um, in an allergic way. Uh, we now have, the, the immune system uh, is kind of redirected to react to things that used to be tolerated. So this is called actually the hygiene hypothesis. And, uh, and it's, it's been um, validated 
that when we use a lot of antibacterials, antivirals, um, mainly antibacterials, and, and our entire uh, microbial system in our body called the microbiome is altered, we're at an increased risk of developing all kinds of allergic diseases. And these allergic diseases include asthma, allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis or eczema, um, and food allergy. Does anyone know the mechanism by which someone becomes allergic or shows you know, an allergic reaction to something? Are there different mechanisms? Is there just one? Like, you know, what's the study look like there? Yeah. So um, there are definitely different kinds of ways the immune system can react to food. Um, there are really what I would say are four different ways. The first way is through an allergy antibody called immunoglobulin E. This allergy antibody can bind to foods or pollen or um, dust, things that could cause us allergies, and then activate the allergy cells in our body called mast cells, basophils, and eosinophils, and, uh, and cause the release of histamine that then can cause anaphylaxis or a deathly allergic reaction. And then this is, I would say, a rapid, it's a rapid response and, uh, and, and can be fatal. Um, if there's a mild uh, allergy antibody response, um, then it could cause hives. And, and that's why we use antihistamines for hives. The best treatment for deathly allergic reactions called anaphylaxis is actually injectable epinephrine. So that's one way the immune system reacts to food. Um, the second way the immune system reacts to food is by cells being reactive. Cells called T cells um, can react, but they do it in a more slow way. They, um, they have to be exposed to it over time and, uh, and they become more reactive. And, um, and they can cause chronic diseases, chronic inflammation, that can affect the skin and the gastrointestinal tract. So, um, so that could cause um, you know, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain that would be chronic and, and allergic inflammation in the gastrointestinal tract um, to, to food. The other thing that can happen is the cells in the skin can cause itching and, uh, and, and the sensation of, of uh, wanting to scratch, which can then uh, cause some inflammation in the skin or atopic dermatitis, also called eczema. So that's the second way um, the immune system can react. Um, the third way the immune system can react to food, which is really uncommon, those first two are the most common, is um, antibody, uh, uh, antibodies that, um, that are normally, uh, kind of normally produced by the body can link up and form complexes. And then they can uh, set down in joints and skin and cause inflammation. That can happen to cow's milk and it can happen in the, uh, in the lung. And that is uh, a more chronic disease. But again, that's very, very rare. And then uh, finally, I would say there are what we call intolerances, not so much allergy. But the fourth way that people can react to food is due to something that's not related to the immune system. It may be a part of the composition of the food. So it could be something like uh, caffeine causing um, a jittery response, fast heart rate, um, flushing. Um, and it could also be something like lactose intolerance, where the person doesn't have the enzyme to break down lactose in milk. 
called lactase. And because they don't have that, whenever they take something that is like milk that has that sugar, uh, lactose, they can't break it down. So it causes them to have diarrhea or gas. So there's several ways the body responds to food, but the two most important, I would say, is the immediate um, immunoglobulin E type one um, allergy antibody mechanism that causes anaphylaxis. And then the second is through um, T cells that can make more chronic uh, inflammatory responses. So where is research heading with uh, working on allergies? Is it uh, you know, in many directions? Is it more towards uh, dampening down people's reactions to, to allergens or you know, yeah. acculturating them to the allergen somehow? Like what, where do you see the advances coming? Mm -hmm. Well, the advances are really geared towards trying to identify what is the trigger um, of an allergic reaction and, and trying to dampen um, whatever that trigger is. Um, there are new medications that are being used um, to treat eczema and atopic dermatitis and asthma that um, can kind of uh, stop the immune system early in the process. Um, one of them is called dupilumab. It's a um, medication that blocks the, uh, the function of during the body called a cytokine that triggers the immune system to make the allergy antibody. And, um, and so that actually has been FDA approved for atopic dermatitis, but not for food allergy. So, um, so studies are ongoing to see if patients who are food allergic could actually eat food if they are given this medication to prevent their, their reaction before they even eat the food. Um, the other thing that's happening is with the oral immunotherapy process, um, many of those patients who are treated will actually develop an accidental uh, reaction. I shouldn't say accidental. It's like a side effect uh, of a reaction to the treatment. Um, 50 to 80% of people will actually have hives after they take a dose. And the reason is because um, our immune system and, and the maintenance of tolerance is not static. It actually changes with um, different conditions. And, and those conditions might be stress. So a person who had a, food, a peanut allergy, who's able to tolerate 300 milligrams of peanut, if they get really stressed, um, if they take that same 300 milligrams, they might have a reaction because the immune system is augmented. Um, with with uh, stress, it's also augmented when with a fever infection. Um, it's augmented with exercise. It's augmented with uh, hot showers. And so, um, with oral immunotherapy, there is a waiting period after taking the dose to ensure that uh, there these factors don't cause reactions. The other thing that uh, can cause uh, reactions to food that were formerly tolerated um, is lack of sleep. And so, so. This, this, as you can imagine, is also a, a significant uh, limitation of oral immunotherapy. So trying to get methods to, to dampen those side effects and maybe a combination of medications uh, during the oral immunotherapy process, is our, that's, that's another area of research. The third area of research I would highlight mm -hmm. is, is actually prevention. So 
um, there was a large study done about five years ago now called the LEAP study, learning early about peanut. And it was done in 650 infants in England. Those 650 infants were split into two groups. One group introduced peanut into the diet um, very early in life, um, before six months of age. And the other group avoided peanut um, for, um, for several, they actually just avoided it. And, and at five years of age, the children who actually introduced peanut were compared to those who avoided it to see what was the percentage of those infants in both groups that developed peanut allergy. And so the children who avoided the peanut had 80% more um, prevalence of peanut allergy than those who introduced the peanut before six months of age. So um, that was a huge eye-opener that is actually really beneficial for children to eat food early because their immune system is developing and it would prevent them from actually developing the food allergy in the first place. So a lot of studies are geared towards doing uh, very large scale studies, introducing food early into infants' diets. That's the recommendation now. And, uh, and determining what are the factors that um, are contributing to the development of food allergy and eczema. And actually there's a study that's about to uh, be started, really the first birth cohort study for atopic dermatitis and food allergy. It's called the Sunbeam Study, and we, we are a site for that study where we're going to recruit pregnant women and follow their infants. We're going to give them the best, absolute best care for allergies and asthma, and, um, and we're going to take samples to, to test the uh, microbiome um, and then follow to see when the children develop eczema and when they develop food allergy um, to really determine what are the factors that are contributing to the development of food allergy. Because really, um, we understand now it's difficult to treat food allergy. It's very tricky. And if we could prevent it in the first place, that would be much um, more desirable. Well, you said that stress can affect the response, sleep, food, you know, other foods, not necessarily the allergen. So it seems like when you're trying to treat someone, the treatment can be very slippery. It works and then it stops working or it doesn't work for some unknown reason. And it just seems like if you're going to treat someone with a food allergy, you need to know everything that's going on with them. And they really need like a, a, a diary or an accounting of what they're doing every day, what they're eating and how they're sleeping. And otherwise how would you apply the right treatment or know that it's effective or that some other factor is not causing them to go off the rails? Yeah. So um, interestingly, from most of the children who were in the studies for that peanut oral immunotherapy trial, at the end of the trial, they all were challenged, had a food challenge to the 300 milligrams. And, and so all of them, or almost all of them actually um, passed that challenge. So we, we know it's effective. And as long as the dose is not taken around um, circumstances that could uh, cause reactions. So uh, 
everyone's counseled not to go out and exercise after they take a dose and not to exercise before they take the dose. Um, if there's travel that's happening and the sleep-wake cycle is messed up, then we say just hold the dose for the day. Um, if a person is sick, then they hold the dose. And so we know that um, it's effective if it's utilized and, and because of the different side effects, we counsel to avoid taking the dose during those times. We're, there are studies that are ongoing to determine if the dose has to be taken every single day or could it be taken every other day or three times a week or once a week. There, there are studies ongoing to look at that. And, and of course, there are studies looking at the egg, um, egg allergy um, and then other uh, allergenic foods. I, I should mention there are other research studies going on with using a patch that has a uh, peanut powder on oh, it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I, I didn't think it was going to work when I first heard about it. But in the children ages four to 11 years, uh, this peanut patch actually does alter the immune system so that a little bit more peanut is tolerated at the end of the, uh, the trial. But we know it works much more slowly than oral immunotherapy. Oral immunotherapy can work in like six months. This patch. Well, if you're, yeah, if you're eating, if you're eating small amounts of peanuts, I would think your microbiome, your gut microbiome, would slowly change, and there would be bacteria there that would like to you know, eat the peanut, even if it's a minute amount. So I would see how, if you escalate that slowly over a long period of time, that that would make more sense. If it's just a patch, then I guess you're relying just on our, you know, somatic cell immune system, and maybe the microbiome doesn't get involved. So maybe the response isn't as good. Yeah, we, we we don't really know. We know the doses. So the dose that you can get on the patch are like a thousandth of the dose that you can take by mouth. So that is kind of the prevailing thought. Maybe we're just not giving enough of it in the patch. But, um, you know, that's a, that's a good point, good thought. You know, maybe the microbiome really isn't changed as much or um, there's some other factor that we, we don't know about. But we do know yeah. over one to three years, um, it, it, it slowly works, slowly works. So, um, so all of those are, um, are things that, uh, that are in the works. Well, you mentioned you also work on gastrointestinal issues in kids. What, what kind of issues come up there? What are the main ones? And I'm sure they're intimately tied to allergies too. <laughs> yeah. So one of the largest problems for, or I should say gastrointestinal problems for children with food allergies is another disease called eosinophilic esophagitis or eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease. Um, eosinophils are allergy cells. And in children who have food allergies, and also adults that have food allergies, and, and some who don't have food allergies, but have general um, allergies to things in the environment, um, they de develop uh, inflammation of the esophagus. The eosinophils infiltrate the esophagus cause inflammation and cause symptoms like um, abdominal pain, vomiting, uh, choking, uh, heartburn, and difficulty swallowing, which we call dysphagia. Um, sometimes food can get stuck in the upper part of the chest and cause chest pain. And so these uh, kinds of symptoms are all due to the allergy cells moving into the esophagus. Um, also, there can be um, inflammation in the stomach or small intestine, large intestine. 
as well that cause diarrhea and um, you know, protein losses. But in, in the allergy or the allergic population, the eosinophilic esophagitis is the most common eosinophilic gastrointestinal disease. So we look at treatment for that um, and, uh, and are doing studies uh, with novel medications to try to treat it. So in this eosinophilic esophagitis, the, the eosinophils, the immune cells, I guess, are piling up in the esophagus? Yes. And they're not supposed to be? Right, right. And uh, yeah, they cause inflammation and, and also the muscles around the esophagus kind of tighten with certain triggers and certain foods. So we try to help uh, patients with this disorder uh, with their treatment. And there are three ways to treat it. One way is with a uh, medicine called a proton pump inhibitor, which is a reflex medicine that can have a dual effect of decreasing the stomach acid and then also um, decreasing the inflammation slightly in the esophagus. The second treatment is actually avoidance of food. So um, we know that if people avoid those food groups that I mentioned, um, about 80, 85% of them will have a, a decrease in the inflammation in their esophagus and improvement in symptoms. And then uh, the third treatment is actually a topical steroid medication where it would be either drunk or even um, an inhaler with a steroid in it that might be used for asthma would actually not be inhaled, but just swallowed. So swallowed steroid, which we consider as a kind of a topical coating for the esophagus is another treatment. Sometimes if this disease goes untreated um, for a long time, then the esophagus can um, scar and people won't, they, they just can't eat. Um, so they have to get what's called a dilation or a surgery to kind of stretch their esophagus open so they can eat. We don't see that so much in children. It's horrible. Mainly in, in adults. It is. It's horrible. <laughs> and so, so I try at Texas hmm. Hospital to treat children so that they don't develop those complications. Well, you got, you got me thinking about asthma for a second. So, you know, like I take an inhaler. I've had asthma for 38 years or something. Um, I wonder if it would be better if I did that something that I could eat, you know, a pill that, uh, I don't know, some kind of, again, allergen that I eat in a capsule in addition to the inhaler, it probably would work better because maybe what I'm having is like a patch, you know, I'm not eating the inhaled stuff essentially. And it's, you know, it's kind of staying locally resident in my throat and lungs and it might be better for me long-term if I was able to eat something. I wonder if that's being worked on. Well, um, the concept that, uh, what you are uh, allergic to, that you could actually take it in order to help your body become more tolerant, is actually um, in the form, we, we do that, but it's, it's in the form with asthma of subcutaneous immunotherapy. So in asthma, um, if a person's allergic to pollen or dust um, or mold, what we can do as allergists is actually um, use a a liquid called an extract that has the proteins from that allergen and, uh, and give it as shots. These are allergy shots and allergy shots make a huge difference with, uh, with asthma. And um, we know that allergy shots don't work well with food because um, the reactions can be too strong. So early studies with uh, subcutaneous allergy shots to food, specifically peanut, caused actually a death in one of the studies. And so it's been deemed really too dangerous to do that for food, but for um, 
what we call air allergens or allergens in the air, that, that works really well for not only asthma, but allergic rhinitis. So, so that concept that you're thinking about that, hmm, I've had asthma for a while. I wonder if I should take what I'm allergic to. Um, that, that's definitely uh, being used and, and is an um, effective therapy. Oh, I didn't realize that. Uh, I don't know why. I guess I thought of asthma and allergies as two completely separate things. I didn't realize that uh, allergy shots might have an impact on asthma. So you're saying they may? Yes, absolutely. So a- asthma that is linked to allergies um, is, is really uh, treated well with allergy shots. And um, I, w- I did want to say if a person eats a food and has wheezing or coughing or asthma symptoms right afterwards, then that is actually one of the definitions of anaphylaxis, to have an allergic reaction to the food. And sometimes it's actually difficult for us to tease out, is this asthma or is this reactivity to food? I um, had a patient, a little girl, who had horrible asthma and her um, pulmonologist said that uh, she, she referred the patient to me for allergy testing. Well, it turns out she was allergic to peanut and she was eating peanut almost every day. And she would eat after eating peanut. And I said, you're allergic to peanuts. Stop that. And miraculously, her asthma went away. Yeah, it's weird though. You know, we talked about uh, giving people minute amounts of peanut so they could tolerate it more. But then now you're saying, okay, well, those cases make sense. Obviously, if, you know, if something's giving you allergies, stop having it. But so when do you go from one end to the other and how do you know what to do? Why does one, why does stopping something work in one case and then adding something in work in another case? <laughs> yeah, there's just a huge spectrum of disease um, in, in food allergy. And there's some people who are so allergic to peanut that they wouldn't even tolerate uh, one milligram. They would react to it. So there's just a large spectrum. Some people are mildly allergic and some people are really, really allergic. And the treatment, this oral immunotherapy works for people in the middle, people who are not super mild and and might grow out of it um, and not people who are super allergic. But the people in the middle who can tolerate one milligram initially and, and won't have a lot of reactions. But where the treatment is actually um, helpful because they would have reactions if they came in contact with, uh, with peanuts. So, so you're so right. That's why it's important to have um, an allergist assess kind of where you lie on that spectrum. Well, it sounds like a missing set of correlations. I mean, like, for instance, is anyone looking at the microbiome of people with, with on the allergy spectrum for a given allergen? You know, let's say peanuts. Yes. No, no reaction, mild, medium, crazy, severe, and comparing. Is there any way to, to ascertain maybe there's a microbiome component? Right, yes. And that's actually, we're, we're doing that study here um, to, to look at through the oral immunotherapy process, does the microbiome change? And, and it's clear that there's some bacteria studies have been done that show, um, Dr. Kathy uh, Nagler did, did this study where she, uh, she showed that there were certain microbes that were associated with tolerance to, um, to peanut or food, and there were certain microbes that were associated with um, allergy. 
but we don't really know if the oral immunotherapy process changes the microbiome. We do know that the oral immunotherapy process decreases the level over time of the allergy antibody to peanut. And there's a, also a blocking antibody that's called immunoglobulin G4, and it actually is a marker of tolerance. It, it actually blocks that allergy antibody from causing the reaction. So we know that the blocking antibody increases and the allergy antibody decreases when people are treated with oral immunotherapy. But we don't really know yet if the microbiome changes somewhere. And I know it's redundant and, you know, it'll be hard to tease out which microbe or set of microbes is responsible for modulating the immune, immune response and the allergic response to certain substances. So, Yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. And it is very complicated. And um, we're just, you know, trying to tease it out. People ask me if taking a probiotic would help their allergies. And I just normally tell them, I don't think it would hurt, but we don't really have evidence that it would help enough to uh, be a cure or a true treatment for the disease. What about the, um, just a couple more questions, the allergies themselves. Like, you know, I've learned that supposedly all the bananas we eat are just one kind of banana. It's very narrow and therefore, you know, bananas may, may go extinct if a certain creature attacks them, you know, a, a fungus or whatever. But like peanuts, do we all, you know, the average person, do they only eat one kind of peanut? And has anyone looked at, you know, well, these kind of peanuts seem to be much worse for allergies than other ones. And, you know, how about the method of cooking them, dry roasted versus, you know, raw versus, you know, et cetera. Like, yeah. has anyone looked into that difference? Um, yeah, they have, yeah. actually. Um, roasting causes an increase in allergenicity of the peanut protein. Um, and it, it causes the bringing together of um, specific uh, protein types um, in the peanut that is recognized by the immune system as being more allergic. And so in the U.S. and in the U.K., we eat these roasted peanuts. But in Asia, in China, peanuts are boiled. And we know that the peanut allergen comes out in the water so that the boiled peanuts have less of the allergenic protein in them. And there's much less peanut allergy in Asia than there is in the United States or the UK. So, um, so that has been assessed. And the, um, the other thing that's being tried now, there hasn't been, uh, no one has noticed that there are different types of peanuts that cause different immune reactions. No, no one has has noticed uh, that, but what's being um, investigated now is the use of a peanut that actually doesn't have the protein that's the, what we call the major allergen. Arrakis hypogea is the name of the major allergen of peanut. And so there are some uh, allergen-free peanuts that are being developed. And, uh, and so we'll be able to see if you actually take the most um, allergy-prone uh, protein from the peanut if, if people with peanut allergy can eat it. So that, that's an ongoing study, an interesting question. For shrimp, it does make a difference. If uh, people can be allergic to Gulf shrimp, but, uh, but not Asian shrimp or vice versa. So it, it is very interesting. Yeah, was, or what about wild-caught versus farm-raised? You know, I would think it would be very different there too, the reaction. 
yeah, you know, studies have not been done to, to really see if there's a difference in allergenicity in farm-raised and, uh, and wild um, cod in terms of people eating the two to see if they have different reactions. So that, that would be a very important study, I think, to do. Right. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more? You know, and if their child has a problem. Oh, yeah. Um, so if they Google Texas Children's Hospital Food Allergy Program, uh, we have a website there. And, uh, and it shows our team and, and also the research that we're doing. Um, it shows we, we have an educational outreach and a food allergy family network where we educate um, about foods. And, uh, and we have kind of four goals of our program to, uh, to offer uh, patient-centered uh, wonderful care access to these state-of-the-art food allergy desensitization protocols, which are the oral immunotherapy protocols. Um, we, our third kind of aim is to uh, improve the methods of diagnosis and treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis. And the last is um, to do educational outreach and uh, inform the community and, and help community members support each other. So yeah, so you can see all of that on our website. All right, that's great. Well, Carla, thanks for what you do. And it's a good call. And it sounds like I need to go see an allergist, you know, maybe for <laughs> shots. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming. I appreciate yeah. it. No, my pleasure. Thanks so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.